Welcome to Word Processing, a resource of Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. Listen in as we discuss issues of God, His Word, and His people. Well, hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Word Processing. My name is Andrew. I'm joined with Josiah. Josiah, good to see you. Good to see you too. Hello everyone. It's good to be here and we are going to go back to our original form for this week and we're going to talk about the sermon that was just preached this past Sunday here at Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. So listener, if you haven't listened to that sermon, I invite you to go check it out. Find it on our website. You can find a video, you can find a manuscript, you can find the audio. Uh, Listen to it because we're going to talk about it. You might be confused if you don't. But Josiah, just to get us back on track, I know it's only been a couple of days, but let's think about that sermon. Can you give us a, that quick run through as we normally do? Uh, what happens in the first half of Matthew chapter 16 that we were looking at this past Sunday? I think a pretty simple structure for a relatively brief passage that we looked at this past Sunday. So I structured the sermon under three headings. This idea of testing, of leaving and of warning. And that's really the structure of the text as well. The Pharisees and Sadducees come up for the purpose of testing Jesus, really to expose him publicly for the fraud that they're convinced he is. In response, Jesus, first he challenges them and then he leaves. That's the second part. He's testing and then leaving. He turns around and walks away. And then as he's walking away with his disciples, he warns them. He warns them about the teaching specifically of the Pharisees. And that's where we kind of the spears point of the passage was this warning that Jesus gives to his disciples and us by extension. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned on Sunday and I think just now as well that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were coming to Jesus, testing him. Specifically, they were asking him for a sign, a sign from heaven, something miraculous. And as you remind us on Sunday, like as if this hadn't been happening at this point in Matthew, now you want a sign? I mean, what's been happening for the last 15 chapters? It's miracle on miracle on miracle. And so from that, we can kind of deduce they asked for a sign, but they weren't really looking to be satisfied by one. Mm But Jesus responds in this kind of interesting way. And you you talked about it briefly on Sunday, but I wonder if we can unpack it a bit more. In Matthew 16, verse 4, Jesus says to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Mm -hmm. And again, you mentioned this briefly on Sunday, but I'm wondering if you can unpack this sign of Jonah thing. I know you've spent a lot of time studying Jonah and and writing on Jonah. Uh, What is Jesus referring to here? Well, thankfully, all the time in the world in Jonah doesn't help at all, really, with the interpretation <laughs> of this. You don't need it. Yeah. I mean, even children know what Jesus is talking about here. And we have clarity because we're in Matthew 16, and he's already had this conversation once, actually in Matthew chapter 12, with people who come to test him. In that case, it was the scribes and Pharisees, and they come up to him in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, and say, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. This time, they don't specify a sign from heaven, but they want evidence. You're making these bold claims prove it to us. And Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Now here he actually explains, whereas in our text this past week, he didn't bother explaining, Mm -hmm. but back in chapter 12, he does. He says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So there's the explanation. You don't need all the details about Nineveh and all that kind of stuff in Jonah. You just need to understand that Jonah was in the great fish for three days and three nights. And Jesus says, just as that, so will I be. The Son of Man is his mm-hmm. one of his favorite titles for himself, right? Pulling Especially from, in Matthew. Yeah, pulling from Daniel chapter 7, this a messianic figure. And he's just saying, listen, just as Jonah did, so I will be. 
And he's talking about his burial and resurrection. Ultimately, just as Jonah came up out of the fish, so he will come up out of the earth, the son of man will. And what's significant about this is, you're right, there's been signs, signs, miracles. And not just his miracles, but his teaching, the things he said and how he taught were exactly fulfilling what was going on with the Old Testament prophecies, what they predicted. John the Baptist was another prophecy that was fulfilled, right? Another sign to them. And he's just saying, there's no more signs for this generation. You are an evil and adulterous generation. And that word is heavy in the ears of an Israelite. Yeah. Adultery, you know, this spiritual adultery, you go back to Hosea, and that was a huge charge against the people of Israel. that They had turned away from Yahweh, their groom, so to speak, and prostituted themselves and were immoral. And so he calls them an adulterous generation. I mean, Jesus just pulls from the Old Testament and says, you're being an adulteress. This generation before me is evil and adulterous. Why? Because the Son of Man is before you, giving you all these signs. You're denying them. So there's no more signs left. The last sign you get is one when it will be too late. When that tomb is empty, some of you, hopefully, will look back and say, wow, we totally got it wrong. So it will be a sign of condemnation more than anything. Hmm. A shameless plug here. I know, as you mentioned, Hosea, and we just had our Hosea cover-to-cover episode just come out That's last right. week. So check that out. But yeah, you're right. This is a would be a really bold claim to them, something that would burn their ears. They would not like to hear. And it is quite simple and, and something that wouldn't necessarily be understood at the time until after Jesus rose again. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's continue on in the passage. After Jesus kind of confronts the Pharisees and the Sadducees, we see something really interesting here in that he leaves. Mm -hmm. Jesus' reaction here is notably different than his reaction elsewhere in Matthew, where, as we've seen multiple times, they accuse him or test him or he faces opposition and he withdraws maybe to, to pray or to be with his disciples or to get away from them. But here, the word is different. He has left. And as you pointed out, this has a note of finality to it. What's different here? What has changed? Do we know? Is it Jesus just getting to the end of his rope? Is he just, you know, done with them? Mm-hmm. Have they said something that's gone too far? What's what's changed? No, I think you do get the impression as you read through Matthew, it is the exhaustion of Jesus and his patience. He's done with them type of feeling. Mm-hmm. You know, Matthew, we need to understand this is one work and Matthew is leading his readers toward this progressive understanding that Israel is blowing it. And Jesus' patience is running out and he's turning progressively away from them. And so even just with that small verb, that seemingly inconsequential verb, he's withdrawing, withdrawing, then he re-engages, withdraws. And then, and then all of a sudden, we find this verb that has not appeared yet in Matthew's interactions with opposition, he leaves. And we never again see him withdrawing. That's it. So there's this, even as Matthew writes the text, there seems to be this progression as opposition grows and as the intensity of the opposition grows and the concentration of the opposition grows. Obviously, we know the terminus of the opposition. It's the cross. And then it's this leaving. Leaving is this pulling back, pulling back. And then all of a sudden, like you said, a finality to it. Leaving. We're done. And we're only at chapter 16. There's lots of text left. Lots to go. And, And eventually he is going to be killed by those same people. He's going to resurrect and he's going to ascend. And there will be an ultimate kind of leaving that generation behind. It's really an authorial literary device. Mm, and he's yeah. leading us toward this understanding. And, and as you read it, you can feel okay, he's withdrawing, withdrawing. And then, oh, it's done. He leaves. And it's not so different in my mind from just a few chapters ago when Jesus kind of has this climactic moment where he presents himself and he is ultimately rejected. And from that point on, does not offer the kingdom to them anymore. 
And it's kind of the same kind of vibe I'm getting here. It's, you know, you keep asking me for a sign. I've given plenty. You don't want this anyways. Like, I'm done. I'm done trying to, the same way that he, you know, instructs his disciples. If you go into a town and they reject you, then shake the dirt off your sandals. Like, shake yeah. it off mm-hmm. and, and move on. It's not worth it. Nothing is being gained from this mm-hmm. anymore. Yeah, it's just an added piece of the puzzle of the unfolding of this narrative of him going to a specific generation that turns out to be evil and adulterous and him pulling away from them with an air of finality here. And it's becoming, like you just mentioned, increasingly final. And if you're reading the story, and especially if you were a Jew reading this story, that would be very clear, especially the what you just mentioned there, the absence of the offer of the kingdom all of a sudden. Hang on, what happened? That, that's ringing in their ears. Same with this withdraw, 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 leaving. These things all add up to this drama of Matthew's gospel. Hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting to see how that progression has been unfolding and something you really don't get unless you read the book as one unit, as you've been talking mm-hmm. about. And even though we've been, you know, preaching through it for a while now and had some breaks in there, it's important we keep looking back to what's come before and, and see the way that Matthew is pointing this progression forward because ultimately it's it's been building this foundation of discontent almost and it's going to lead us to this point of you know the pharisees and sadducees realizing that they've been rejected and eventually that leading to their their actions against jesus himself yeah maybe the breaks don't really help it would be helpful if we just kept going without breaks but it is neat if you think about the whole of matthew's gospel there is kind of this angst in the middle Mm-hmm. Oh, what about the kingdom? Oh, he's pulling away from this generation. And there's almost a sense of kind of hopelessness and despair building. But we know that ultimately at the end, it gets even better because he raises from the dead and he ascends to the father and he sends us out into the world. So it does, spoiler alert, have a happy ending. But this is part of that drama. We are in the trenches right now in the, there's this, these doldrums right now of kind of what is going on. There's a bit of confusion and certainly the disciples following Jesus would have felt this confusion as well. And we'll see that even in the weeks ahead as Peter starts to interact with Jesus and he has to be instructed on what's coming next and that confuses them and Jesus comforts them and, and back and forth we go. We're right in the middle of this narrative. Well, and I think it's important for us to realize too that like they didn't want what they were asking for. They had already made up their minds. They had already clearly rejected Jesus just a few chapters before. And ultimately they needed to reject him for him to go to the cross. Yeah. And that's part of the story that Matthew is is telling us in such a unique way. Well, in the following part of the chapter, we have this warning where Jesus warns his disciples about the danger of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which is revealed to be, as you said, their teaching and more specifically their unbelief. I'm wondering if you can help us to see, obviously this was a big deal for them, and we can see the teaching that the Pharisees and Sadducees had. The unbelief practically was you know, face-to-face with Jesus, they could see it pretty easily. But where does this creep in most for us as believers now from inside the church, outside the church? Where is unbelief a risk for us? Obviously, if we've believed in Jesus, we are saved, we are justified. But how can unbelief really affect us now? And you kind of talked about this on Sunday too, but I feel like it's a good opportunity Mm -hmm. to talk about it a bit more. Yeah, you're right. When we talk about unbelief within the body of Christ, we're not talking about forsaking salvation. For That's sure. a done deal. But certainly it can rob us of some benefits of that relationship if we are not believing the one we are associated with. Yeah. This is true of any relationship, right? This is true of any relationship you know, with a spouse. My relationship with my wife will only thrive to the extent that we trust one another and that I believe what she says. And it's the same with our relationship with God. You know, if, if I don't believe that he is truly good, 
I will start viewing life circumstances through that skeptical lens. I'm experiencing health issues. So I say, is God really good? I start doubting. You know, he can't be totally. He's not totally faithful. He doesn't have my best interests in mind. He's not. There's so many things that we start unbelieving. It's no different from the garden. Has God really said, the Mm -hmm. serpent said to Eve? That is the fundamental question of every sinful bit of idolatry that we engage in. We're always vying between these two voices. God's voice, which is always infallible and perfect and clear. And then the voice of everything else, whether it's the world, ourselves, the world, the flesh, and the devil, as Paul says, those have countering voices and countering claims. And even as believers, we are put to a decision all the time, which will we believe? Do we believe God's voice, which has never failed? Or do we believe the voice of all of these other fallen issues that sometimes seem louder? And so, I mean, that's where unbelief comes in. And it happens on a, I mean, I want to say on an hourly basis you know, with me that I'm always being, I don't want to say tested, but I, I am being tested between these two voices, right? I'm parted with, yeah, with voices. Who, who am I going to believe? Mm-hmm. Right? Who am I going to believe? Is God good? Is he faithful? Is he just? Is he clear? Is he fill in the blank? Or do my emotions rule the day? Or does my experience rule the day? Or does... My sense of logic or right and wrong or the cultural malaise or whatever, do all of these win the day? Am I viewing God through those lenses and making him out to be a liar? Am I calling him a liar? It's unbelief. It's always unbelief. Yeah, you specifically mentioned the idea that the world has lifted up skepticism as this mark of intelligence or wisdom. I think that's such a huge topic, a huge thing where we all, I mean, it's really the idolatry of self. Yeah. Ultimately, that I know best because I can think my way there. But yeah, I mean, don't get me started. I'm going to become a curmudgeon here. I just think it is the lazy man's intelligence. You know, it's it's slothful. I'm just going to ask questions. I'm going to poke holes, and everyone's applauding like this is some high form of intelligence. Mm-hmm. No, it's not. It's just laziness. And is there good questions to be asked? Absolutely. But we can all tell the difference between a good question and a question like the Pharisees and Sadducees. They're not looking to learn. They're just looking to poke holes in something they've already decided is not true. And yeah, again, our world loves that kind of stuff because it's you, there's no work that has to be done. You don't have to grow in intelligence then. You don't have to grow in your ability to understand reality. You just have to ask questions that make you sound smart and tear down the thing that you're too lazy to figure out mm-hmm. and too lazy to, and too proud to submit to if it shows to itself to be true. And too unwilling to commit to a viewpoint even, mm-hmm. like the idea of fence sitting. Yeah, I know I've struggled with that a lot in my life of like, oh, th- both of these perspectives seem like they have good merits to them so it's easier just to ask questions of both and not actually commit to anything but of course it's easier doesn't mean it's right and again i want to reiterate there is a legitimate humble time to ask questions to sit on the fence to explore that's not what i was criticizing on sunday i i just want to encourage us to be careful not to hide behind that type of skepticism that our world seems to love Mm -hmm. that's not applauded here in this text in fact it's called into question it's warned against by jesus Well, I mentioned before the idea of how unbelief can sneak into the church, and I've seen this being a popular thing, not necessarily at Oak Ridge per se, but as in the church as a whole, Christianity, and asking questions or or almost looking for reasons to Mm -hmm. doubt your faith or looking for reasons to tear down what you've believed in the past. And it just just seems so counterproductive. It seems so dangerous. It seems like you're trying to strike a match in the middle of a dry field at times. This is a kissing cousin to the idolatry of skepticism. It's this idolatry of doubt or celebration of doubt. 
as a badge of not necessarily intelligence, but of authenticity mm -hmm. and vulnerability. Listen, doubts are inevitable. You know, we are fallen people. We are going to doubt ourselves. We are going to doubt whatever the case may be. And the Bible doesn't shy away from that. There are people that struggle with doubt in the Bible. And there are people in the church, guess what, that struggle with doubt. But our culture, like you're right, I've seen the same thing, where there becomes a celebration of doubt, where doubt becomes the telos, the end goal, like you've arrived at this spiritual maturity. If you doubt things, that means you're really true. You're really thinking hard. You've really embraced your finitude, all that kind of stuff. No way. Doubt is an opportunity for us to throw ourselves by faith onto the mercy of God and ask him, like that man that you love to quote, ask the Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Yep. We do not celebrate doubt. We are compassionate with people who doubt. We help one another. We encourage one another. We carry one another's burdens and we get out of doubt. Mm -hmm. We do not stay in doubt. The goal is to be assured. I write these things that you may know, John writes, that you may know that you yep. have eternal life. Doubt is inevitable, but we do not sit there. And I totally agree with you. While our world is celebrating unbelief and skepticism, it also seems to be in the church, there's this confusion about the nature of doubt. Like we want to arrive there. That's when we're truly being authentic and vulnerable, which again, don't get me started on those two things. That be has become this virtue, this, this virtue far beyond what it should be. So we just need to be careful. Use biblical language. Is doubt real? Yes. Do we sit there and wallow in it like a toddler in a bubble bath? No way. We want to get out and help one another get out and go to the word of God and depend on the Holy Spirit to help us get out of doubt and, and solve those doubts. Yeah, to me, my mind goes to Romans 3 when Paul is talking to his readers in the church in Rome and addressing this idea of should you sin more so that God's grace can be mm -hmm. demonstrated more? Of course not. But sometimes I think we get the same idea with doubt that like, you know, if I doubt more, then I come to a conclusion then I'm really going to be solid in my faith. And so therefore I should seek out doubt to make sure my faith is stronger in the same way we might say, oh, like if I go and sin for a bit and come back, then I'll truly be repentant. It'll show how great God is that he can forgive me for even what I did. And I think of, you know, those people who have those testimonies that we all know and love of like, man, I was in such darkness and God brought me to light and they're incredible. But does that mean that I should go seek out the darkness so I can have a better story? Of course not. That is so counterproductive. We should appreciate what we know, appreciate what the, the foundation of faith is not something that should be chipped away at. It should be something that should be built upon. Um, and I think that's that's so important here. Yeah, we live in an age of deconstruction and question everything. And I think that most of our listeners would be on board with what we're saying. Like most of them are going to say, yeah, I don't want to doubt. I want to move away from doubt. I want to move away from unbelief. And again, this text, Jesus in this text is just warning us about playing in those waters of unbelief mm -hmm. unnecessarily. Yep. See, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Beware of what they collectively taught. And again, we said on Sunday, the Pharisees and Sadducees didn't collectively teach a whole Not lot of anything. <laughs> but what brought them together in this passage was their joint unbelief in Jesus as Messiah. He's saying, beware of that unbelief in, in my person, in my work. And we live in a world like we've been belaboring, perhaps, that is filled with unbelief. And we are in that world. We live in that world. We minister in that world. We're sent into that world as ambassadors for Christ. But we want to be cautious and beware that unbelief because it is a spreading type of virus. If we sit in it too long, and that's exactly why Jesus was warning his disciples, by the way. These are, these are believers, followers mm -hmm. of his. Beware yeah. because unbelief can do damage if it gets into even believers' lives. 
Well, I'm glad you took us to that direction of virus because that was how you kind of ended it on Sunday, giving us this illustration of something we know all too well right mm-hmm. now of the dangers of a virus. You gave us three strategies for how to avoid or beware or be cautious of unbelief. And I'm wondering if we can just look at these three things again and maybe give one more example. You know, part of the reason we started this podcast was to give more practical application than we could fit on a Sunday morning. Um, So maybe one or two quick strategies for each of these techniques, I guess, for lack of a better word. So when thinking of unbelief and thinking of it as a virus, you talked about the idea of striving for general health. What is something easy that we can do this week to strive for general health when it comes to belief, unbelief? The best thing we can do to be generally healthy, growing, maturing Christians is to do the things that scripture itself gives us to do. These regular means of grace. Be in the word. Be in time with prayer. Be with God's people. Confess your sins to the Lord. Keep short accounts with the Lord. These are just normal things, and our listeners will grow weary of hearing these ad nauseum over and over again. I was going to say, it sounds a lot like our New Year's resolution oh my uh, goodness. podcast like, last week. <laughs> but if we want to be healthy people, that when we go into the world, a world riddled with unbelief, and even when we're in the church and helping people who struggle with unbelief, and the times that we struggle with unbelief, the healthier, healthier we are, the more full of the spirit we are, the more sure of the word we are, the more resilient we will be to the virus of unbelief. That is, I think, just... Common, Common sense, sense, isn't it? Yeah. 100%. And so, and, and the parallel to physical virus is very similar. I mean, we've seen that healthy people fight off physical illness better than unhealthy people with mm-hmm. pre-existing conditions. It's the same spiritually. We want to be healthy people. And there are just things that week to week we need to be doing to make sure that we are healthy. And these are not imaginary things. These are things that the Bible itself gives us to do. So let's talk about avoiding unnecessary exposure. Yeah, like I said, we're in the world we're around the world, we are ambassadors for Christ, we are exposed to unbelief. If not in the world, in the church, if not in the church, in our own hearts, it's Mm -hmm. everywhere. And so the question is not how do I avoid it altogether and pull back and go into kind of a Noah's Ark, kind of preserving myself in the storm and the flood of unbelief. No, no. That is, how can I be wise and discerning on knowing when to expose and when to pull away? We want to guard our hearts, as Proverbs 4 said, because streams flow from the heart. We want to guard our hearts above all else. So how do I do that? And really, that's going to be a little bit building upon the first one. If I'm healthy and walking with the Lord, the Spirit can help me discern when to pull away, when to withdraw, when to leave, and when to engage Mm -hmm. for the sake of the gospel. But I want to guard my heart. And if you're a parent, you want to guard your children's hearts because they have been entrusted to your care as well. So, you know, if you have a habit of like arguing on YouTube comment sections about religious things, you know, I'm sure there's people that are called to that ministry. Most of us, though, understand that that is probably pearls before swine. That is probably not very helpful. Yeah, not very helpful. It you are swimming in a swamp of unbelief and skepticism that is exacerbated by anonymity, and maybe that might be time just to pull away. It's doing more harm to your heart than it's actually doing good in theirs. And again, that's a a conversation you need to have with the Lord. But that would be just one silly example of you know. Do I engage here? Is this unnecessary exposure to the virus of unbelief? The things we watch, the people we listen to, the the conversations we have, the friendships we keep, mm-hmm. all of those things are significant enough that we should pay them prayerful attention. Mm-hmm. Are these unnecessary points of exposure for me? And And I have to know my heart. You have to know your heart. Our listener has to know their own heart. We all have different capacities to know how to deal with unbelief and what we can withstand. And so just to be honest before the Lord and to avoid unnecessarily, even if it's under the guise of ministry, guard your heart, guard your heart, brother, guard your heart, sister. Uh, First and foremost, unnecessary exposure is not helpful. And knowing, I guess, even the voice 
and influence you give to those sources? You know, knowing that we're going to be around unbelief, what are the ones or the, the ways that this actually can creep into my mm-hmm. life? Which are the ones that are actually maybe challenging me in not a good way or mm-hmm. not helpful ways? Asking the Lord to show you ways that this is where, if, it, if there's things that are wearing you down yeah. that you need to pull back from. And be okay with not having a response all the time. We've talked about that recently, you and I. This idea that just because you don't have an answer doesn't mean one doesn't exist. That's so huge. And so when someone comes and they're chipping away at your belief with their unbelief, just to be okay and, and to not have to have a rebuttal, but be content with just saying, that's not convincing to mm-hmm. me. I don't know why even. I just know that what you're saying does not convince me. And leave it at that. And then pull back and we'll get into this third suggestion uh, pretty soon here. But understand that in the 2,000-year history of the church, your opponents on the YouTube comment section, your opponents at the dinner table, whatever the case may be, they are not bringing anything new to no. the table. No objection is new. Every objection has been dealt with in church history. So just because you don't have a rebuttal on the tip of your tongue doesn't mean one doesn't exist. And just as you are growing in the Lord, as you are generally healthy, you will be able to discern. Alarm bells will go off in your head. I don't know why, but that smells funny, that statement. And then just say that. I don't know why, but that does not convince me. And then pull back and try to figure out why. Mm -hmm. Get help when we're sick. Josiah, where do we turn? We're all going to get infected with unbelief. It's an inevitability. We're fallen creatures living in a fallen world as ambassadors to Christ into a fallen world to fallen people. We're going to get infected. So the question is, what do we do when we feel that twinge of unbelief starting to grip our hearts and our minds? Maybe something that someone said, as skeptical as they are, as stubborn and hard-hearted as they are, something penetrated the armor and it got to my heart. And if I'm honest, it's starting to cause me some consternation. It's starting to get worse. It's starting to spread, as Jesus said it would. Mm -hmm. What do I do? Is God's word really reliable? I mean, what about this guy is saying that it was put together this way and the other way? It's not trustworthy. What do I do with that? What what do I do with the problem of evil in this world? What do I do with... And the questions are endless, right? And if those start to seep in to your heart, don't go it alone. Pull back. This is why the church is here, to encourage one another, to build one another up. It is an army barracks. We talk about that often. We bring people in to heal the wounded and train up soldiers to send them back out into the world. And so do not go this alone. If you feel the twinge of unbelief wrapping its tentacles around your heart, come into the church, find, and I'm not saying to the front of the corporate worship and announce your unbelief, but (laughs) find someone, someone that you trust, someone you want to know and say, hey, can we just talk about this? They may not even have an answer, but just to share that burden with someone. And they might just say, oh, I've dealt with that as well. Oh, I've dealt with something similar. That carrying one another's burdens is so helpful. And so lean in, ask the Lord for help, first and foremost, obviously. Lord, I believe, but I'm struggling here. I need your help with this unbelief. Give me a peace. Give me a faith that outstretches any of the unbelief I'm struggling with. You know, go to the word and say, Lord, I need a word from you. I need you to comfort me with the rock that my life is built upon, a la Matthew 7. So don't go it alone is the message. Mm-hmm. If you are sick, the worst thing you can do is be by yourself and allow that leaven to spread. Get help, get help, get help. There's no shame in getting help. We all need help. So join the club of us help needers. So what I'm hearing is quarantining is not the right way to deal with this particular virus. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Josiah, thanks for chatting today um, about this important passage in Matthew. And although it's short, it's obviously applicable and mighty. And so I thank you for the extra application and words you've had for us this morning. And listen until until next time. We pray that you go with grace and peace. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you are encouraged and learned something new. 
visit oakridgebiblechapel.org to listen to sermons and for more information.